Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, ISO 14001, 2015, What You Need to Know, sponsored by ACOM and ETQ. My name is Tom Music. I am an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of part participants today, we might not get to every question. However, all unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I can let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our first speaker today will be Rebecca A. Corno. She is the Senior Project Manager, Management Systems for ACOM in Atlanta. Rebecca has more than 22 years of experience in the environmental consulting industry. She specializes in energy, environmental, and health and safety management systems, and corporate sustainability. Our second speaker will be Greg Stevens. He is the Global Alliances Director with ETQ. Greg has 29 years of experience in management systems, environmental compliance, and information management solutions. Thanks to all of you for tuning in to this presentation. Rebecca, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Tom, for that introduction, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, today, my presentation is going to focus on identifying some of the more strategic changes to the new ISO 14001 standard and to hopefully provide some perspective on the intent of those changes. And um, while it's important to note there's plenty of changes associated with new words and new definitions and an overall new format, um, I won't necessarily be providing a deep dive on every one of those changes, but what I do hope to accomplish with our time today is to help provide an understanding of the philosophical changes and provide you with some strategies that you hopefully can deploy in your own organization to help achieve the business value that has been designed into the new standard. So to begin, I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes um, reviewing where we started from in the role of the ISO standards in systematizing environmental management and performance. Um, up until the mid-80s, really, the operating philosophy was about pollution control and responsible disposal. And it really wasn't until the 90s until we started to see a shift towards preventing pollution. Uh, 1996, we saw the first environmental management system standard published by ISO. And since 1996, there have been various updates to the standard uh, focused on promoting environmental stewardship and driving continual improvement in 
and performance. In 2011, we saw the release of the ISO 50001 standard, which provides a systems-based framework uh, specifically for energy management. And really, that takes us to current time. And today, we're seeing another shift towards sustainability with organizations trying to address the three pillars of sustainability, those being environment, society, and the economy as part of their operating practices and philosophies. And this shift is really um, is really the basis for the ISO 14001-2015 standard. So what is ISO 14001? Um, just to give you a little bit of background, um, the, the standard was created by the International Organization for Standardization, which is a worldwide federation of national standard bodies. And those members consist of international organizations, governmental and non-governmental organizations, and special interest groups. Um, the purpose of the ISO 14001 standard, um, uh, as defined within the standard, is to provide organizations with a framework to protect the environment and to respond to changing environmental conditions in balance with socioeconomic needs. The standard also specifies requirements that enables an organization to achieve intended outcomes that it sets for its environmental management system. So the management system approach defined in the standard is built on the Plan Do Check Act model, or PDCA. And that model is really designed to provide a process for achieving and demonstrating continual improvement uh, within your organization. And I think it's important to note that while the framework does provide a best-in-class management system, um, really the level of complexity and detail is going to vary by organization and by industry. It's ultimately up to each organization uh, to create a customized system that addresses your specific activities and products and services and really helps you manage your environmental aspects and impacts that are unique to your operations. So one of the bigger changes in the 2015 standard is that it's been restructured to reflect um, the high-level structure for management systems, which is defined in the ISO Annex SL document. And, th and this is a mandatory change, so all existing ISO standards will be converted to the new structure over time. So it's a 10-level structure. Um, and so for those of us that have uh, a current EMS in place based on the 2004 standard, you know, this will feel like a big change with the overall look and feel of the standard changing in 2015. Um, so in addition to the new framework, ISO has also defined a new uh, systems approach to the PDCA model so that, that, so that this new framework can still effectively align with that PDCA model. I'll, I'll talk about this in a little bit more on the next slide. Um, but ultimately, one of the biggest benefits of um, moving to this new high-level structure, um, especially for organizations that might have multiple ISO-based systems in place, such as 9001 or 18001, um, really this high-level structure is designed to help organizations integrate management systems and define a set of core business functions that can be used across the organization. So that's things like your internal audit processes, your management review processes, your corrective and preventive actions. So to talk about the relationship in a bit more detail between the PDCA model and the revised framework, 
Um, within the 2015 standard, you'll now see a change in the typical diagram representing the Plan Do Check Act model. That's the diagram on the right hand of the slide. And this new diagram shows how the high-level structure and the associated requirements can be integrated into that model, you know, still very much emphasizing the importance of, uh, of a systems approach. Um, and again, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit more detail in the next couple of slides um, some of the new and modified requirements defined within this high-level structure, and we'll discuss the associated philosophical changes with that. So what's new? Well, big picture, the changes to the 2015 standard really helps put it center stage as a framework to manage the environmental pillar of sustainability. Um, the framework by design is now more strategic, it's more outward looking, and it's going to place greater emphasis on products and services rather than just on on-site activities. So uh, with the next couple of slides, we're going to talk about how the requirements defined in the 2004 standard have evolved or shifted, uh, now becoming more inclusive by potentially helping organizations redefine their organizational boundaries and taking a true top-down approach to their management system. And again, these changes uh, present in some areas significant change or shift for an organization. Again, by, by design, they're more strategic, they're more business-oriented. So with the new standard, it's really asking organizations to achieve a broader understanding of the context in which they operate, and then ensure the EMS responds to meet those issues that are identified within the context of their organization and the intended outcomes that the organization defines for their management system. And intended outcomes can include things like enhanced environmental performance, fulfillment of compliance obligations, and achievements of environmental objectives. Um, so for organizations that have traditionally defined their EMS within the boundaries of their facility or their on-site operations, they are now being asked to extend those boundaries beyond their property lines and really apply a more comprehensive life cycle perspective to their products, their services, and their activities. So as I mentioned um, at the beginning of this presentation, really the shift towards sustainability is a big driver for the 2015 changes. And if we look at the old standard language and the new standard language side by side, you can really see that the emphasis is changing from achieving sound environmental performance to achieving sound environmental performance in balance with society and the economy. Uh, again, the 2015 standard is really moving towards the concept of sustainable development and is taking a more holistic approach to managing environmental performance. Um, and I think the shift is, is a critical element here, and, a, and I think a, a fundamental question that, you know, most organizations will, will be faced with is, you know, are we able to embrace the concepts of sustainability and use them to help us set, set business priorities and, and perhaps a new direction for our management system? And certainly I think it may be easier for some organizations that have committed to sustainability, have programs in place, are perhaps working on sustainability objectives and targets, and, and likely harder for other organizations that have not fully committed to the principles of sustainability. I think in either case, the 2015 standard really does promote the adoption of a systematic approach to environmental management you know, with the aim or through the lens of contributing to the environmental pillar of sustainability. 
So the shift in priorities we see in the 2015 standard is that the EMS should deliver additional business value and benefits. And those can include control, controlling costs, further reducing um, uh, and controlling risks, increasing uh, business resilience, gaining competitive advantage and market share. And again, if we look at the old standard language and the new standard language side by side, you can really see a shift from implementing an EMS to largely assuring conformance to an organization's environmental policy to implementing an EMS, which provides value to the environment, to the organization, and to interested parties, and is designed to achieve its intended outcomes. Um, we also see that there's a shift in the continual improvement emphasis from improving, um, uh, improving your environmental management system, which was the focus of 2004, to improving environmental performance, uh, which is emphasized in the 2015 standard. So within the 2015 standard, organizations are now provided with some very specific guidance for setting organizational boundaries and determining of the scope of the EMS. That didn't exist in the 2004 standard. Um, ultimately, the credibility of your EMS is going to depend on the choice of your organizational boundaries. You know, organizations should avoid excluding activities and products and services or locations that have or can have a significant environmental aspect or or you know, cutting out pieces of your operation to potentially evade some compliance obligations. Um, with the new standard, there's greater emphasis on including products and services rather than just on-site activities, sort of defined within your fence line. So it's going to require an organization to look upstream and downstream in your supply chain and beyond the walls of your facility. So again, I think for some organizations, this may be a daunting task, particularly for global organizations with big operational footprints. I think the flip side is you know, redefining the scope of your management system, uh, looking at your boundaries can certainly help you better position yourself for managing global risks. Um, and, and taking advantage of global opportunities um, that may not have been considered in your current management system just, just because of the way you defined your scope. So the requirements for top management have also been expanded and strengthened in the 2015 standard. Uh, management is now held accountable for the effectiveness of the EMS and for ensuring that the EMS achieves its intended outcomes. Um, and again, this is really a big step change from the 2004 standard um, where there was some basic requirements for top management to appoint a management representative, you know, sign an environmental policy, and attend a management review meeting. Um, the 2015 re revision really offers an opportunity for organizations that may have seen their EMS stall or become stagnated, maybe due to lack of um, or, or lagging leadership to revitalize their approach to environmental management. Again, so it helps really drive that business value. And obviously, you know, leadership is key to this equation. So again, with the standard, top management is, is responsible for ensuring the EMS is integrated with other business processes um, and compatible with business strategies so that decisions are made with consideration uh, for the environment at all levels of the organization. 
And one other note um, that I'd like to point out is there's now a requirement that the environmental policy include a commitment to the protection of the environment and other specific commitments relevant to the context of the organization. So top management is ultimately responsible for determining if the organization should, as appropriate, make any additional commitments within that policy because of the nature, scale, and impact of their activities. And so, you know, ultimately this will, will require that management have greater accountability and engagement in determining that context of the organization, understanding those internal and external issues, and then providing some direction and guidance on how they feel the EMS should be designed in order to achieve its intended outcomes. So the last section where um, we see some um, where we see some uh, shifting perspective again, as it relates to communication. And if we look at the um, uh, old standard language and the new standard language side by side, we really start to see a shift from having a procedure to receive and respond to communications from external interested parties to actually having processes in place for external communications. And within them, you define what will be communicated and when, to whom, and to how. So it's really no longer about responding to incoming communications, but it's now more about proactive communication. And that shift is from one-way to two-way communication. Um, there still is a requirement to respond to relevant communications, but now there's also requirements to communicate reliable, factual, and transparent information on a defined frequency according to your established processes or as required by compliance obligations. So we're going to shift gears a little bit now, and we're going to focus on uh, the newly added requirements uh, and those perspectives to the 2015 standard. We're going to talk about the organizational context, interested parties, an expanded planning process, and life cycle perspectives. So section four, uh, which is called context of the organization, is a new section to the standard. Um, the requirements in this section require an organization to demonstrate a broader understanding of the context in which it operates. And as part of that process, to identify the internal and external issues that are relevant to the organization and that can affect its ability to achieve the intended outcomes of its management system. So as an organization, this requires um, a greater understanding of your organization's direction, your, your strategic vision, your culture and resources, and then obviously any external influences um, that, that you need to recognize. And so the intent is to obtain a high-level understanding of the issues. Um, the standard does not require or expect you to identify every possible issue for your organization. You do have some flexibility to define and determine what is relevant. Um, so again, organizations are required to think about the issues beyond their facility walls and or their on-site activities and account for issues that they may create as, as a result of those operational processes, but also account for and consider the impacts of the environment on the organization. So that's things like drought conditions or climate change or nat natural disasters. Um, 
And then this information is then used to help determine your organizational boundaries and help establish the scope of your management system. So in this slide, I just wanted to provide some examples of what issues uh, could be for an organization. There could be issues related to environmental conditions, um, air quality, water quality, natural resource availability. There could be issues associated with external cultural, social, or political issues. Um, those could, again, be a wide range. They could exist internationally, domestically, regionally or locally. There could be issues associated with the internal characteristics and conditions of your own organization, your culture and capabilities, your workforce, your processes, your systems. Um, there's also a new subsection to Section 4 uh, pertaining to interested parties. And here the standard is requiring an organization to identify interested parties. Um, i.e. your stakeholders, um, and to gain a general understanding of their expressed needs and expectations. So the intent is for the organization to then take an understanding of these interested party needs and expectations and determine which of them it has to or chooses to comply with. And then those become compliance obligations. And in the 2015 standard, compliance obligations largely replaces the term legal and other requirements. Um, so once these are, once you determine which of these become compliance obligations, um, you then take these obligations into account when planning and maintaining your management system. So in terms of definition of interested parties, you know, who, who is that? Well, that can be your customers, your communities you operate in, your suppliers, regulators, investors, special interest groups, and employees. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the 2015 standard is now more strategic and outward looking. So identifying interested parties and understanding their needs and expectations is really one of those requirements that supports the outward-looking focus of the, of the new standard. Um, actions to address risks and opportunities is a newly added subsection to the planning requirements defined in Section 6. Uh, so historically, um, the planning uh, process include identifying your objectives and targets, um, identifying your environmental aspects and impacts, identifying your legal and other requirements. Um, and so it now includes identifying risk and opportunities and planning action to address them so that any undesired effects can be prevented or reduced and really continual improvement can be achieved. Um, so defined by the standard, risks and opportunities can be related to environmental aspects, your compliance obligations or issues or other needs and expectations of interested parties. So for example, risks can include you know, an environmental incident due to literacy or language barriers among your workforce um, or noncompliance with regulatory requirements which could result in legal action. Um, an example of an opportunity could be identifying new technologies such as control equipment that could reduce polluting discharges. Um, I think it's important to note that the standard does not define or mandate a methodology for identifying risks and opportunities. It's really going to be up to each organization to select their methods 
uh, for doing that. Um, what is required is that once your risks and opportunities are identified and you've determined those that need to be addressed, that they are documented. Uh, so again, once your risks and opportunities are identified, uh, they can be used by an organization as inputs for planning actions and uh, more specifically for establishing environmental objectives. And, and I think this is, this is another good area or clear, clear area of the standard where action done in the context of the environmental management system can certainly also drive additional business benefits and value for the entire organization. Um, life cycle requirements built into the 2015 standard um, really go hand in hand with some of the other philosophical changes that I've already discussed. Um, applying a life cycle perspective is intended to help organizations apply an expanded, more strategic approach to how they think about their environmental aspects and plan for and implement operational controls. Again, this is also going to tie back to the identification of risks and, and opportunities associated with uh, environmental aspects. Um, so we already discussed how the standard is placing greater emphasis on products and services rather than just on on-site activities. So the life cycle requirements um, will help an organization determine environmental aspects at each stage of the life cycle of their products and services. And really, it's no longer about those just relating to on-site activities. So as an organization increases its understanding of those aspects across their entire value chain, really then they're in a position to put in place processes and practices to manage those aspects and control the associated business risk, or in some cases to maximize the opportunities. Um, again, I think it's important to note that a formal or detailed life cycle assessment is not required by the standard. Um, but the standard does expect an organization to consider all stages in a life cycle. So that's going to include your acquisition of raw materials, your design and production processes, your transportation and delivery, uh, product use and end-of-life treatment, and final disposal. Um, in addition, an organization is required to consider those stages in the life cycle over which it has the greatest control or influence. And, you know, those areas will offer the greatest opportunity to reduce resource use and minimize pollution or waste. So the life cycle perspective requirements show up in two places in the new standard. The first place is under section 6.1.2, environmental aspects. And so when looking at the old standard and the new standard language side by side, you can see that the 2004 standard um, encouraged organizations to consider aspects within the life cycle of their products and services. But in the 2015 standard, it's actually required. So when applying a life cycle perspective, um, some of the things that organizations should consider, again, is the degree of control it has over the life cycle stages or the degree of influence it has, the actual life of the product, um, your organization's influence on your supply chain and the length of that chain, or perhaps the technical complexity of your products. Um, the second place that the life cycle perspective requirements show up is under 
Section 8.1, that's Operational Planning and Control. Um, and again, if we take a look at the old standard and the new standard side by side, you can see in the 2004 standard, um, it was largely focused on defining operational controls associated with your significant environmental aspects. And that's really been expanded in the 2015 standard, where you see specific requirements for extending controls to the product or service design and development process and procurement process, again, consistent with that life cycle perspective, meaning that the organization is going to consider each life cycle stage and then determine what controls are needed based on um, that perspective. Again, here in the 2015 standard, you'll also see some of the additional communication requirements uh, that we discussed on an earlier slide. So, what does an organization do with all of these new and modified requirements and philosophical changes? Um, I think the first thing, a good first step is to understand your transition timeline. Um, so the transition to the 2015 standard must be completed by September 2018. So ISO is essentially given three years for organizations to transition uh, to, uh, the, to the new standard. And three years may seem like a lot of time, um, but due to the nature of some of those changes, it may actually require some organizations that all of that time to figure out how to uh, address those changes, how to engage perhaps other functions or departments within their organization and implement perhaps new or revised processes, uh, again, to demonstrate uh, that you've met the intent of those changes. Um, so now's a good time to start working with your registrar if, in fact, you already have a certified management system in place and determine the appropriate timeline um, for your organization. Um, recertification audits, which are conducted on a three-year cycle, are going to be the most logical time to, to certify to the new standard. Um, but uh, I think most registrars out there are trying to avoid every one of their clients wanting to have a certification audit in September of 2018. So I do know registrars are trying to come up with a schedule that would allow um, all of their clients to achieve certification within that timeline. So I would go ahead and give your registrar a call if you haven't already. Um, you can certify or re you can recertify or even achieve initial certification to the 2004 standard during this transition period, um, but it's important to note that your certificate will only be valid until September 2018, and then again at that point you will need to certify to the new standard. So if for some chance you take this approach, you know, keep in mind you'll likely end up paying for two certification audits in less than three years and you know, to potentially two major disruptions uh, to your organization in a short amount of time. So um, in terms of um, you know, some common next steps, and, and again, the transition process is going to be unique to each organization, um, but I do think that there are some next steps that um, all organizations can implement uh, to get going um, on, this, 
on this process. And so engaging top management and briefing them on the standard changes and new requirements is a good first step. Um, you, they need to be educated. They need to be made aware of what the new standard requirements are and potentially what that impact looks like on the organization. I think conducting a gap analysis to figure out you know, your specific gaps is a good step. Um, it'll also help provide some clear direction on focus areas and effort needed. Uh, you can then take those gaps and translate them into a phased action plan, which will allow you time to implement the changes and, more importantly, determine if those changes were effective, which you'll really want to do prior to your certification audit. Um, another thing you can be doing is if you've designed your EMS to align with the 2004 framework, um, you can go ahead and start updating your documentation to reflect that new structure if that's still going to be your preferred approach. And, and lastly but not least, um, don't forget to communicate across your organization throughout this transition period in keeping folks informed of the plan changes, the anticipated impacts will certainly help with overall buy-in and acceptance, particularly for groups that may historically not been involved in the management system and will now need to be due to the nature of some of those new requirements. I think getting them um, uh, involved in this process and exposed to those requirements as early as possible is, is really going to be helpful. So, you know, once you're at the point where you've got your action plan defined and you're starting to chip away at some of your gaps, um, we wanted to provide some, uh, you know, what we think might be some early actions for uh, most organization and, you know, where those outputs will certainly help establish or modify um, your current EMS. Um, so once you've gotten to the point where you've gotten uh, top management engaged and they're brought up to speed, I think a, a, a next logical action might be to do a business mapping exercise or, or process, which will allow you to identify where the EMS can be integrated or fully, uh, further integrated into existing business processes. Um, I think this information can then be used to obtain an understanding of how your management system and its intended outcomes can, can be truly compatible with your business goals. Um, and then reviewing these business processes can also provide valuable input into other requirements such as the context review and identifying your interested parties. I think a next step after that could be reviewing the strategic context of your organization, and that's going to include identifying your internal and external issues, identifying your interested parties, and determining which of their needs and expectations should become compliance obligations. And then all of this information, I think, feeds nicely into an EMS scoping process. And during that part of the process, it's really about revisiting your current EMS scope you know, taking a look to see if it's still relevant um, it, or if your organizational boundaries need to be perhaps redefined with the new data you've collected. Um, I think this is also a good opportunity. Take a look at your policy at this point. Um, you know, is it still appropriate to the purpose and context of the organization? Does it need to be revised? Um, and then finally, I think a risk identification process should be implemented. And again, um, the approach is, is going to be up to each organization. Um, and if you've got risk assessment um, processes or tools in place uh, at a business level, you know, certainly look to leverage those versus reinventing a process merely for the management system. And then I think um, at the end of the day, the, the outputs 
um, from each of these processes can really then be used to establish a new, stronger, more strategic management system foundation. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, with, with these inputs, your EMS will then be designed to deliver that additional business value um, and really help establish strategic environmental objectives that are aligned with your overall business objectives and priorities. So I wanted to provide um, some strategies that I think potentially you can utilize within your organizations as you work through your transition plan. And as, as we've been working with our clients, I think some of these would also fall into the category of best practices. Um, you know, pay attention to your interested parties. Um, uh, really look for opportunities to engage them, understand their needs and expectations. You know, know what they want, and to the extent possible, you know, try to make that happen. I think interested parties can provide valuable input on risks and opportunities that may otherwise be difficult for your organization to identify um, or understand. Um, again, coming back to the cross-functional input, I, I think that's vital um, through this process. Engaging a cross-functional team is really going to help with that context review, that interested party identification. I think it will also help support the integration of the EMS requirements into existing business processes. And again, you know, looking for opportunities to engage process owners in that process mapping initiative. Um, I discussed a few slides back, will really go a long way. Um, know your business risks and how they relate to the EMS. Um, you know, really try to understand those risks and align them. Um, I think ultimately that's going to help your organization prevent undesired effects and um, can certainly help position you to drive a, cultural, uh, a culture of continual improvements. Um, you know, I think lastly, um, what, I, what I'd certainly recommend is um, you know, seize this as an opportunity to revitalize the EMS among your workforce. Um, this really could be an opportunity to breathe some new life into your EMS, um, especially if it's uh, just become, uh, you know, just another program or something the environmental department owns, um, and really reintroduce it into the organization as a strategic business tool or something that can help support innovation and deliver additional business value. So some parting thoughts. Um, in the beginning of this presentation, I, I talked about how business priorities are changing and evolving, uh, primarily in response to societal expectations for doing the right thing and becoming more responsible corporate citizens. Uh, and really to address these evolving business priorities, the 2015 standard is, is really requiring those philosophical shifts in, in many areas of the standard. These shifting philosophies and, and those associated requirements can, by design, potentially provide some real opportunity for your EMS to, to evolve and align with changing business priorities um, within your own organization. So, again, at the end of the day, I think the question becomes, you know, for your organization, will you look to embrace the strategic nature of these, of these new requirements? in the standard, um, or, or is it simply, you know, a check-the-box uh, exercise? Um, so with that, I thank you for your time today, uh, and I'm now going to turn it back over to uh, Greg Stevens from ETQ. 
All right, thanks, Rebecca. That's a great summary of the changes in ISO 14001, uh, how you can prepare and manage through those changes successfully. I wanted to take just a few minutes here at the end, and we can get into some great Q&A, because uh, I know there's some questions, uh, to talk about how to turn your ISO 14001 management system into a real agent of change toward improvement within your organization. So, so just a, a little background on ETQ. We're a technology company. We provide our customers an enterprise platform that gives you visibility and control into your management systems. And we help companies reduce risk, be socially responsible, and be sustainable. So we're basically a, a very broad suite of solutions. We have a broad suite of solutions that cover EHS, quality management, and sustainability. And right at the heart of this is risk analysis and continuous improvement. And, and you can see there are, there are key elements of ISO 14001 interwoven into our platform. So, so you see things like auditing, corrective action, preventive action, CAPA, uh, dot control, uh, permit control, we call that in the EHS space, training, management of change, risk management. So, so reliance is based on workflow, uh, just so that customers can build in the needed accountability aspects that, that Rebecca mentioned earlier. And our customers tell us this is a much more uh, effective way to achieve ISO 14001 goals and targets than with just disjointed systems or with, with static documents and, and emails and such. Uh, now, now, we understand how those siloed processes and systems come to be. Uh, companies tend to budget and plan that way, and, and many just don't know, know that they have an option. So, so you can be an agent of change within your own organization by introducing these more integrated approaches that save your company time and uh, resources. So, so in the last couple of slides, if I can just break this down into some practical aspects, one of the keys to putting legs on your ISO 14001 system is to integrate with your existing critical business systems. So, so we integrate with all the common tools and platforms that you already use. Uh, customer data, suppliers, operations data, uh, other data can be brought into your compliance and risk platform. And, and then the time to manage and the effectiveness are, are really improved, are greatly improved. Uh, once you have the data, then you can quickly turn that data into information that's tailored to each department, each user even so that you know exactly what actions to take and you have that, that kind of uh, uh, insight. Whether it's improvement, you want to avoid an issue, or, or, or you just want to create your own uh, compliance reports, mandatory reporting. We're also seeing an, an interesting trend in that companies want to further drill into the data using analytics and more complex algorithms to uncover uh, interrelations and even predictive indicators that you maybe didn't have before. So we're really seeing a, a trend there. We see some innovation happening, and, and we're uh, taking that on ourselves to help our customers see that and, and realize that. And one of the resonating messages in the market right now is around uh, workflow-based software applications. We're hearing that at conferences, and as we hear from our customers, that this is really helpful. And we've been doing this for about 20 years through uh, quality systems. Uh, so this is becoming critical to compliance, to risk management, to operational excellence. And, and when you think about a company's uh, equity and, and value 
most of it is sitting right in the processes and procedures that you've spent years or decades fine-tuning and building. Uh, a workflow-based system lets you capture those processes, tailor them to how you do business, and then improve and tweak on those as things change, like the new ISO 14001 uh, uh, changes in the, in the uh, 2015. So, so don't change your processes for the software. Build a system that can flex and adjust to your uh, processes. And this is, this is really important. So, so in a nutshell, for your ISO 14001 system to really make a difference, you have to turn your management system data into insights that can be acted on, tracked, made accountable uh, from the shop floor to the boardroom. And, and a key point here at the end, you know, highly configurable to the way that you work. And really that's all I had. Uh, and I appreciate all of you, know, you hanging in here till the end. And I'll turn this back over to Tom for uh, Q&A. Great, Greg. Thank you very much, and thanks to Rebecca as well. I uh, really appreciate your insights and your expertise. Um, before we get started with the Q&A, I just want to remind everybody about the evaluation survey that we're going to ask you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen. Uh, your input's important because it will help us improve all of our future webcasts. Um, if you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. That's probably the reason. Um, you may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Um, and with all of that out of the way, let's go ahead and get to some questions about this presentation. Um, so Rebecca and Greg, I will start off uh, with our first question that comes in. Uh, it says, can it be assumed that R2 downstream tracking and focus would satisfy a good portion of the life cycle requirement for an electronics recycler? I can repeat that question if you'd like. Um, I, I can see it. Thank you. Um, I, I think the answer is yes, uh, mostly. So, um, you know, obviously this is, this is uh, largely downstream focused. And so uh, as we, uh, as you sort of as an organization look at both the upstream and downstream I think um, this R2 downstream tracking certainly helps uh, with the back end of that life cycle. Um, and then, you know, the question would be, how, how can you manage or identify uh, the upstream uh, portion of that? But yes, I, I think largely, I'm assuming, you know, what you're getting is good, consistent, reliable data then I think that can certainly help demonstrate um, that, that downstream or back end of your life cycle process. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, we got another question for you. It, it pertains to off-site activities. Um, the question is, do off-site activities only pertain to upstream and downstream in the product cycle, or do they also pertain to quote-unquote neighbors? Okay, so if I understand the question, um, so off-site activities will largely be um, that can interact with the environment. Um, so um, in terms of upstream and downstream, um, it, it certainly still applies to anything that goes um, uh, off-site in terms of environmental impact. Um, certainly that could include your neighbors, so that can be, you know, the waste that are coming as a result of, of uh, your processes. Um, it could be your discharges. It could be air emissions. So in terms of your neighbors, I mean, certainly that, that's going to fall into that category, um, particularly where um, those activities 
will interact with the environment. I think that's where that where that neighbor piece comes in. Thank you. Um, our next question it has to do with, I know you referenced GRI materiality during your presentation. Um, the, the questioner is wondering what specifically does GRI materiality mean? Ah, okay. Um, so the Global Reporting Initiative um, uh, really requires uh, or encourages an organization to determine what is material to their organization. And material, there, there's some nice overlap there in the 2015 standard in, in that you have to sort of look at all of your internal and external issues as an organization. And they ask you to determine what's material so that in the context of what you're reporting under the Global Re Reporting Initiative, that it's actually relevant to your organization. Um, so that's really what that materiality concept you know, we see it in the GRI, and, and it's largely been adopted by the 2015 standard. But that's what that's aimed to do. Again, you know, determining the issues that are relevant to your organization, and then making sure that your processes and your systems and what you're reporting in terms of external reporting, uh, again, is, it really makes sense and, and material to your organization. You, uh, you spoke about top management. Um, during your presentation, we have someone who says, who is considered top management in an organization that has multiple sites, not all of which are ISO certified? It's uh, a good question. So the top management definition in the standard is a person or group of people who direct organization at the highest level. Um, so if there were, um, you know, four facilities uh, within an organization um, and only one of them was going to get certified, it's um, within that individual organization, it's going to be the highest level uh, that's considered top management. So it has to be within the organization that's achieving certification, um, and then within that organization, it's considered the highest level who, again, directs or controls that organization. Great. Thank you for adding some insights to that. Um, we have a question. Um, the, the question says, we strive to make as small of an impact as possible to the environment and to the community. What are examples of interested parties? And, and then it says regulators like city, state, federal, neighbors, dot, 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 question mark. So basically just looking for some information on um, examples of, of interested parties. Yeah, um, so it's all of the above um, in terms of examples. Um, interested parties are also things like your customers. Um, uh, if uh, you're producing something, uh, you know, if you're a supplier to a customer or a set of customers, they're they certainly going to be interested parties. Uh, neighbors, uh, local community groups are certainly, um, you know, potentially going to be interested parties. Um, so it, it, it could be a, a pretty large dynamic list. Um, it could be, you know, public uh, advocate groups. Um, but, I, but I think to answer the question, um, you know, really, it, again, it's going to be up to each organization to determine what those interested, you know, who they are and, and, and what's relevant in terms of what their needs and expectations are. Um, but it can range everything from, you know, a local neighbor um, to, you know, potentially something internationally depending on the extent of your operational footprint. 
Great. Um, and then, uh, Rebecca, we also have a question in which someone asked you, can you please elaborate on um, when you said know the business risks and how they relate to the EMS? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Um, one of the things um, that I that I think is um, uh, has been a real value add to the new standard is to identify your risks and opportunities. Um, and if you look at some of the additional guidance that's been published, um, that's not just purely environmental risk, um, that they are really um, encouraging organizations to cast a broader net in looking at their risks and opportunities. And so there's likely um, some very well-developed processes in place um, in an organization to identify business risks. And often because those business risks, you know, while there may be some overlap with environmental, um, they sort of inherently be kept in sort of their own category of business risks. And with these new requirements in the standard, particularly the risks and opportunities, I think there's, a, there's actually a very nice opportunity to now take those traditionally bucketed business risks that we sort of were outside of the management system and look for opportunities where, where there is overlap within sort of environmental and, and the management system framework and see where there can be some alignment there. So, and again, that comes back to the integration of with existing business processes. So again, what the standard is trying to do is it's trying to say, don't hang your EMS off to the side. Don't let it be a system that just the environmental department runs with and owns. Really look to try to integrate that back into existing business processes. Really look for alignment and your business risk um, you know, there'll be some real nice alignment there once you, you know, you sort of, you know, sit down and take a look at them and, and understand the processes they use to identify those risks. So again, I think knowing those risks, mapping them to your EMS, and then looking for ways to integrate those EMS requirements back into those existing business processes will really create some nice harmonization here. Great. Um, we have another question that comes in. He says, assuming no change in products or services provided, what would be some examples of where scope would change? Um, good question. Um, so some of the things that I've been helping my clients work through right now, um, and, in their, and their products and services ha have not changed is that they, they may have thought about the world slightly different um, uh, back with the 2004 standard. Um, and so with the new standard, this whole concept of um, sort of identifying and understanding your inputs and outputs um, and sort of mapping them on your life cycle stages, um, you, may, you may identify that you actually have a greater level of control in your supply chain. Um, because those are direct relationships, you're providing the specs, um, you know, to a set of suppliers. And so you may decide that your scope could be expanded to include some of those, some of those um, you know, processes and associated capabilities. Um, and then perhaps your scope would expand to include, include those if you go sort of a little further up, um, upstream in your, in your product or service life cycle. So, um, but it's not, it's not to say that, um, 
you know, every scope will change as a result of the 2015 standard. I think what it's really merely trying to do is to get you to look at it maybe a bit more comprehensively and make sure you're comfortable with your current scope. Or if you feel like you do, in fact, have some additional control and influence, again, beyond sort of your property fence line, then take ownership of that and include that in the scope of your management system. Great. Thank you. Um, we've got a few more questions coming in. I know we're coming up. We've got a, a few more minutes, so we definitely have time for a few questions. Um, the next question is, what are the most common sustainability programs used for companies, and how can they move to the ISO 14001-2015 standards? Oh, um, you know, again, in my experience, um, there, there's not a, uh, a defined set of sustainability programs I can point any one organization to. Um, they really need to be uh, defined to meet each organization's needs, um, their, their footprint, um, and, and some of the challenge inherent in their industry. Um, but, you know, but obviously there, there's some basic programs out there in terms of, um, you know, risk identification and management. I think a lot of organizations that have um, uh, more defined or evolved sustainability programs, they've already got some well-defined stakeholder engagement processes in place. Um, you know, understanding what your environmental footprint is and, and how to control that through the use of operational controls, training programs, um, making sure you've got competency among your workforce. I mean, those are all bits and pieces of um, some common sustainability programs out there. Um, but it's, it, really, it is really hard to point, you know, a company that is starting out on this process to point them to any one discrete packaged sustainability program. I think it's really you're going to get the ultimate value from sustainability when, when you really define uh, what, it, what it means to your organization and, and what it needs to look like based on your organizational footprint and your business priorities. So, you know, how can you move towards ISO 14001? You know, there are plenty of resources out there on the Internet in terms of some templates or, um, you know, pro model processes that perhaps can be reviewed, modified, and adopted by organizations just starting out. I think there's some basic elements of many of those processes, like a management review, like an internal audit program, where there are examples uh, and templates out there. So certainly, you know, that's probably a bit more um, uh, readily defined and available in the marketplace, um, you know, versus, you know, individual sustainability programs. Got time for one or two real quick uh, technical questions. Looks like some short answers here. Um, one question is, top management is involved in our current system, but they do not attend every meeting. Will this be a requirement? Um, no. Uh, it, it's not. It's not in, unless you want them involved in every meeting. Um, it all. It all um, will depend on you know sort of the boundaries you define for engagement. You know, at the end of the day, a registrar comes in and sits down with top management. They're going to look for evidence that they're fulfilling all of those requirements in the 2015 standards. So your top management has got to be comfortable um, and sort of well educated on what those requirements are, and they need to be able to demonstrate 
demonstrate how they're um, addressing those requirements and um, uh, taking on those roles and responsibilities within your organization. So do they need to be at every meeting? No. Might they need to be at more meetings if they've traditionally only been involved in one or two in the past? It's likely, but again, you know, it's, it's up for each organization to figure that out. Well, thanks, Rebecca, for all those great answers. We, we have even more questions coming in, and unfortunately, we are running out of time here, and I'm sorry we didn't get to everybody's questions, um, but they all will be forwarded on to today's speakers. Um, so thank you for taking the time to send those in. Um, once again, I hope everyone takes the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. Um, and that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I would like to thank Rebecca, Greg, everyone at ACOM and ETQ, and all of you who listened in. Thank you very much, and have a great day.